Hey everybody, welcome to the No Film School podcast for the week of July 24th, 2020, otherwise known as week 18 of the COVID shutdown. I'm Charles Hayne, writer for No Film School. I'm here with editor-in-chief of No Film School, George Edelman. Hello. And writer for No Film School, Michelle De La Tour. It's also week one of the Dixie Chicks going by the Chicks for their newest album. Hello, everybody. And uh, this week, we're going to be talking about a comment from a reader that we've taken to heart. We are going to be talking about so many K's. And do you need all the K's? Uh, we're going to be talking about finally getting an answer on Tenet, and it wasn't the answer we wanted. All that and a little bit of tech news is what we're going to cover this week on the No Film School podcast. All right, so top story this week, a wonderful comment on our podcast posts from last week. We had a conversation, and I think we were talking about a serious thing, which is uh, in the banking world, they're getting rid of master-slave terminology in code. There's a lot of master-slave terminology in programming on film sets. And we had a conversation um, in which we were probably a little too flip. I mean, I was being flipped personally. I will own that I was being flipped because it's so ridiculous to me that we ever built a machine and we're like, you know what? This mode where it's in charge should be master. And this mode where it's in follow mode should be slave. It could just be lead and follow. Like... The idea that it's master and like, it's so crazy and it's so insane that that was the way these things were built whenever they were building them is ridiculous. And I think we might've gotten a little flip and then, uh, yeah. And then it led to a conversation of whether or not we should get rid of male and female connector terms. Um, and if it should, and we didn't talk about options, but like it should just be any or Audi or any of a billion other options that aren't inherently sexual. I want to recap again, sort of the idea of the comment. You did a great job recapping what happened, what we spoke about last week that inspired this comment. I want to make sure we thank the commenter. Her name is Rachel. She commented on the website. So on the film school, on the actual website, we post the film, the, the podcast. We also post it on SoundCloud and it goes live to wherever you get your podcasts. But you know, if you want to comment, you can always comment on the website itself, which is where we, where Michelle found this comment and brought it to my attention um, and Charles's attention. And I really like this comment because I like this, the fluidity of everyone growing together as the world progresses. And as we check one another in terms of, hey, maybe this is a more appropriate way to not offend people or personally, I don't get offended when people tell me that they are offended by something. I think that sort of became a strange uh, enigma, paradox, silly thing that is happening where we get angry about people who are angry or offended by people who are offended instead of just saying, oh, interesting point. I see where you're coming from. Maybe there's something I can do differently to be a better human being. Um, So all that being said, two things. I want to just highlight from the comment that I took to heart. One, we did say uh, offhandedly, we would, we should as a society handle the issue of the master-slave terminology before we worry about the issue of the male-female one, which is not fair or true. And as Rachel points out, there's an intersection between those two things. There is no reason to prioritize one over the other. It's just the way the phrases flowed in the nature of the podcast. Uh, It doesn't mean we value or I value one set over the other. Um, The other thing I I wanted to mention, though, that, that got me thinking was that we laughed. I personally, like I can only speak for myself here, um, I laugh at things that are inappropriate a lot. And I laugh at things that make me uncomfortable or that are uncomfortable. It's just part of how I react to things. I can also understand how that can seem hurtful or insensitive or any number of things. Um, it's something that I try to keep an eye on, but it comes from a place of finding, and I'm not, I'm not defending it as a thing to do, by the way. I'm just saying it comes from a place, especially in this instance, of finding the concept absurd. So I find the idea that we, like Charles mentioned it, and this time I tried not to laugh, but again, but 
I find the idea that we've stuck with these terms in some ways absurd, um, unnecessary, um, but but just just ridiculous. Uh, and I mean that both in the like because it's wrong and it's and it's funny to me that we are still. I feel the need to explain why that happens, not necessarily defend it, but um, I hear the point. I take it to heart, and I think we can all do a, a better job of of just catching ourselves and and it's useful to hear from people who see it where we don't because you know like the world that I came into is a lot different than the world today and I think that there are people in the world today who get the 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 way the wind is blowing a little better than me and I can always learn um and I'm always happy to and I think that's a that's a big part of what we want to be about at No Film School. So keep checking us and keep checking everybody. And 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 that's a good thing. So thank you. I want to say thank you to Rachel for bringing this to our attention. And thank you to you both for taking the time to reflect on it. I think it's important to name if something feels like it was a mistake or a comment that we're reflecting on. And so I appreciate you both. I remember in the moment thinking... Actually, I kind of want to go back to talk about that male-female thing. I don't know if we should prioritize one or the other. Part of this comment that I also wanted to lift that George, you just did, is around intersection intersectionality. And the reality is the world of needing to address kind of all interrelated terms and things that are creating the experiences that people are living in. There are Black, Indigenous people of color who are facing these compounded layers, right, when we use these terms of... Of what, of what they're enduring, to use the word that Rachel eloquently used, and the kind of microaggressions on a daily basis. And I, to put one over the other would be not acknowledging the fact that there are layers to it. And a lot of people are facing those terms and lots of other elements in our industry and outside of our industry all the time. So thank you for the opportunity to step back and look at it. I was going to make a note about the laughter piece. That was my hunch, George, was that laughter is one of the things that we... I say we collectively, uh, even outside this podcast, we as human beings, I think sometimes react to the discomfort um, with laughter. And it is something that uh, we collectively as human beings, when we, when it's something ridiculous and it's very uncomfortable, you know, we, we tend to fill that silence with something. We're at a weird moment in time where there is a real like head to head on like, are we supposed to care about woke culture? And like, are we supposed to be constantly like reassessing whether what we're allowed, quote unquote, to say or to joke about, et cetera, et cetera? Um, and is it hurting us? Is it limiting us? Is it blah, 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 blah? I, I really think it's not. I think it's expanding what you can't, what we're capable of and what the talent pool looks like. And like, I think instead of looking at, at the future as being like, scary and and uh limiting you should look at it as like opportunity for growth and expansion and being more savvy the, there's an opportunity you you can look at it either one of two ways really and i think that it's a mistake to limit yourself to it being like oh it's ruining everything like well, i also think there's this interesting thing about a cultural willingness to change and grow that is like important here. And like, I want to own up. I have a bad habit of everything in my life of like, all right, let's do it one thing at a time. Like that is just the way my process works is like, we'll get into a brainstorming session about something and there'll be like nine different ideas. And I'm like, okay, let's do it one at a time. So like, but like, I actually think that that's the wrong way to tackle the situation we're in. The situation we're in is like, no, let's, let's tackle it all. Like, let's get rid of master and slave terminology. Let's get rid of grossly calling these cables, male and female for no relevant reason. Like, Let's look at, like, let's take this big opportunity. Because what happens, I think, a lot of the time, and it's a fair criticism when people are like, let's deal with this now and we'll deal with the other thing later, is later becomes never. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I just listened to this amazing podcast on NPR about uh, there was a report in the 1960s after all the 1960s riots. Uh, Lyndon Johnson put together a commission to do a report on, like, what was causing all of those riots. And the commission was basically like, oh, white racism, structural inequality, lack of jobs, like, here are all the things we needed to fix it. Like, it's all the things that 50 years later we still need to do. And nobody did them. And so it's one of those things of like, yeah, it's a totally fair criticism to be like, no, why don't we, why don't we fight an all fronts battle? Like, why don't we like, for instance, the thing I always like to remember is like, if we decide as a society that it should be better a different way, like we can do it. Like Sweden 
looked around in the 60s. Sweden used to drive on the same side as England. They used to drive on the left side of the road. And then they realized they wanted to export their cars abroad, and it would be cheaper if they switched to their whole country to driving on the right instead of driving on the left, so that they only had to make cars for themselves and international export. Um, eventually, they went back to making left-hand drive cars. Long story. So they just did it over one weekend in 67. They just switched the whole country over to driving on the other side of the road. And like all of these things we're talking about, I mean, you know, they have historical meaning, but they also have present day meaning. Like we want film sets. Film sets are not inviting. I remember when I was starting on sets in the nineties and like, I'm a straight white dude who's kind of tall, like, and I was hazed and I didn't feel welcome. And I felt like I had to prove something and people were always giving me a hard time. And like, it was, you know, there is a culture on film sets and crew life and something of like, you have to prove that you belong there and you have to like get over some hurdles. And there's a lot of like that kind oh, of stuff. And yeah. I really even, love- even checking gear out at a rental house is oh just like, a whole, like a, yes. like, not to be like a, a, a measuring contest. I should say like, there's just a, it's just the culture of it is so like proved to me that you belong. And there's such a toxic quality to it. I don't know what else, to, how else to put it, but it's, and so yeah, to it's, think about, all right, if there's other things we're doing that are making it less pleasant, if we have that already, which we need to work on, and also terminology on set that make people feel unwelcome there, well, fuck it. Like, let's change both. Let's try and change the culture and change the terminology. I mean, I had a post on a film school that I drafted and I never published. And I don't know why I never, I, I never finished is the true answer. And it was, these are the 10 terms we need to stop using on set. Yes. Um, Can you share some, what are some of those terms? When I started the industry, there were lights that were referred to as blondes and redheads. I don't hear that as much anymore, although I swear I did go to a lighting demo within the last two years, and the DP was, like, in this lighting demo. They were like, all right, well, you just throw a couple blondes over there. And I was like, no, it's 2018. Like, really? We're still calling them blondes and redheads? Um, And there's a few others. I mean, mother-daughter I haven't heard in 15 years, but hopefully mother-daughter is totally gone. Um, Although, who knows? Maybe someone is still out there using that. But, yeah, I, I guess I never... Yeah, maybe I should revisit that post for 2020 and see what are the things. Or someone else should write the post. There's, I, I probably don't see a lot of it. You, stu- you touched on something, which is that if we make a film set more inclusive or more pleasant or more open, possible for more people to feel comfortable, isn't the likelihood that we're going to get better stuff? Better and stuff. isn't that actually Absolutely. our goal, right? Absolutely. I think like the more inclusive we become, the better the things we create will be, but also the better your achievements will be because it means you're not like running a rigged race. And I know we're very far from that reality, but I just see like, I see it as a, as a challenge you either step up to or you get scared of. And I don't think anybody wants to like run away from the challenge of like, can you make a better thing that it, that touches, that hits on more of these checks, more of these boxes and like, you know, works through more of these um, various filters. I'm combining something I heard with something I wrote, which is someone else's success doesn't mean like, it's not pie, right? It's not like someone else gets success. You know, someone else has success. It doesn't mean that you don't get a slice. Like that's not how this works. But also I feel like we need to start looking at these things. If someone has success, however you define that, or is able to contribute something incredible to the industry, like the whole industry improves. It's not like, oh, that person made it and I didn't. And therefore, this is a problem. Like that person made something amazing. That's an amazing contribution to the entire industry and will affect and improve you too. Yeah. So, And as an audience, you'll get something better. Exactly. Like, I'm personally tired of, of a lot of sta- of the staleness of a lot of things. And I think that pre- people from different backgrounds and places w- would like help freshen what we've got as an offering, but yeah, for sure. It's, uh, it's the scarcity thing. Like, like the scarcity is, it's a means of, it's almost a means of control to imply that like there's limited number of shots, you know? Yeah. Well, it's also about reproducing trauma, right? Like if you in the eighties were traumatized trying to break in the film industry, but you like powered through it and did it, you kind of feel like it's your job to then traumatize the next group coming in after you. And it's like, dude, can we just stop this cycle? Can we like be welcoming to people who want to come into the industry and try and support them? Like it's a hard enough industry on its own. And Mm -hmm. like, yeah, we can be friendly and share information about how to navigate it. 
even even if there was no one there to do that for us, we can still do that for others. Yeah. There's yes. two, again, it's like there's two ways to approach it. It's like it's like there the whole world of um I don't know if it's still true, but it certainly was true that the world of representation and agents was like some kind of nightmare boot camp of torture. And you rose through those ranks and then you became one of the torturers, right? <laughs> like that's yeah. kind of how it works. I don't know if it's still like that, by the way. I, so don't say I'm not suggesting that. I don't know. But it certainly was. And I don't know why I think you choose to reproduce the trauma, like you said, Charles, or you choose to change the dynamic in the narrative. And like I don't see the I don't see why you wouldn't. Um, want to try and change it and see if that results in the same or better or, you know, like, or just at least a human experience that's, that's higher quality. Um, I think sometimes that treatment of people and systems is this idea that it's going to create better work, like the boot camp mentality. Um, but it, 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 maybe it will, maybe it won't. Either way, isn't like how we experience life most important <laughs> like if we're happy going to work or if we hate it you know but that's just that's my two cents i think we're all open to the possibility that we are not perfect and we still have things to learn and we can grow from things we don't handle perfectly and uh, so we appreciate the feedback all right up next not even going in tech news, although it would normally go in tech news, but it is dominated enough of my social media and, and my email questions and conversations for last week that it felt like a headline to me. Blackmagic, you guys all know them for their wonderful Resolve software. They also make the very popular pop, Pocket 4K and Pocket 6K cameras, which sell like hotcakes. They make the RC Mini, Ursa Mini cameras, which are great cameras, but they're not actually mini and they should drop mini from the name, but whatever. <laughs> um, really dynamite cameras. They also have their own raw format and they just came out with the new Ursa Mini Pro. It's a $10,000 camera and it shoots 12K. Here's the thing. I'm, I agree with everyone that Ks are overrated. I'm not obsessed with Ks. Ks are not the most important thing. I've, I've had a choice between a 6K and an 8K camera for a certain project and I went with the 6K over the 8K because there were other things I liked about it, like better low light sensitivity. It's, it's happened to me more than once. Like I still... I still shoot Alexa a lot. Alexa is only 4K. Ks are not the most important thing in the world. Ks are not going to solve all of your problem. Resolution is not the only thing we're looking for on a camera. We're looking for low light sensitivity. We're looking for color reproduction and color science. We're working for ease of workflow. And, and can it fit into the rest of my workflow? Can it work with the accessories and the lenses I already own? There's all these things we want out of a camera. But I do think the 12K here is really interesting. And I'm going to tell you guys why. So, and I'm going to keep it as, as nerd friend, as non-nerd friendly as possible. So in order to get color out of a normal camera, right, we used to do three separate chips, one for red, one for green, one for blue. We don't do that anymore because we want to use movie lenses. So we use a single sensor, but that sensor has to be sensitive to color. So there's three different types of pixels on that sensor, a red sensitive pixel, a blue sensitive pixel, and a green sensitive pixel or sensors, actually, sensor pixels is what I should be saying. A pixel is in the final video result. A sensor is what's on the sensor. And these are, um, they have little color filters on them to color out the other light, right? Because if you want a green-sensitive sensor, you want it only getting green light. You don't want it reacting to red light or else you'd get bad data. The image wouldn't look right. So they have these color filters on them. And as you guys know, anyone who's ever set up a light and put a gel on it knows any kind of filtering cuts down on your light pass through, right? Less light is going through because of that little filter. These filters are usually arrayed in what we call the Bayer pattern, uh, which has, uh, like if we had a 4k sensor, it'd be about 2000 green, sen um, sensors, a thousand red and a thousand blue. So that red camera, you, you know, the red 4k camera from 10 years ago, even though it was called a 4k camera, it only had a thousand pixels of, red and a thousand of blue and 2000 of green. And then we would do this thing called debayering, which is a process that takes all of those colors um, and does the math to sort of recreate a full color image. That's why the camera uh, is so fascinating is you can do that debayering in post with a raw format. That's what's really exciting. What's particularly interesting about this particular camera is that 
Black about Magic the 12K mini. About the 12K Ursa Mini. Is that Black Magic owns Resolve, which is incredibly powerful editing software and color correcting software and post processing software. They have their own proprietary Black Magic RAW format and they make cameras. So they do all of those things so they can get weird. And they are not doing a bare sensor with this camera, which is great. Um, first off, other sensors are interesting. I shoot a lot of Fuji. Fuji uses X-Trans, which is their own weird pattern. Um, but they're not even using something weird like X-Trans. They're, in fact, half the pixels on the 12K sensor are monochrome, which means there's no little color filter on them. And that's super cool. Because so it's six, gonna give you 6,000 of them? 6,000 of the pixels or stencils, 6,000 of the stencils have no color filter on them, which means you're going to get better low light performance out of it, right? Because one of the worries we have as, as sensors get more resolution is the stencils have to get smaller, right? And as stencils get smaller, you need more light to get a good image because as the stencil gets smaller, it, it, uh, it's like a bucket in the rain. It's a smaller bucket. So it captures less rain. It's the same thing. So, one of the worries when I hear 12K is I immediately think, oh, oh my God, you can't shoot at night with that. But what they did instead is they were like, oh, hey, what if half of our pixels were monochrome pixels? Monochrome pixels, even if they're smaller because they don't have that little filter in front of them, are going to be much better in low light. Exactly. They're not losing light to the um, pixels. On top of that, it is 2,000 green, 2,000 red, and 2,000 blue pixels. But it's even numbers for red, green, and blue. So if you're finishing 2K, which I'm going to be honest with you, 75% of work still finishes 2K, Yeah. right? Like 2K is still so common. You have a complete 2K image for each color pass. Green, red, and blue, you have a complete. And, you know, in Resolve and in a lot of VFX programs, you'll sometimes go in and look, work with just the red layer, just the blue layer, just the green layer. That's a common thing. Um, you'll often have different noise in different layers because of the different sensitivities to light. With this format, you'll have a complete 2K version of red, green, and blue that you're going to be able to pull from from VFX and color grading workflows with really high resolution. And you're going to have that amazing 6K monochrome image all mixed together in Blackmagic RAW. And apparently, they've done a lot of work so that even the 12K Blackmagic RAW isn't going to feel like it's choking your system. Blackmagic RAW is designed to be a lightweight, playable format and so, I mean, you know, you're still going to want a really powerful computer. It's still 12K. It's not going to run on, you know, a 5, 10-year-old MacBook Pro. But if you have a brand new MacBook Pro that's reasonably well-powered, from what I'm seeing, I haven't tested it yet, but from what I hear, talking to other people who have used it, it is surprisingly usable for a 12K format. It also means, because of the way they designed the sensor, that you can do full sensor 4K and 8K off the camera. So you can do 4K to 120 frames per second off this camera. 120 frames per second 4K is great. That's something you weren't seeing in cameras at this point until very recently. And the other thing you're really seeing is a lot of the early users reporting like really just a really nice combination of color reproduction and surprising low light considering 12K. I haven't tested it yet, but I, th I think its weirdness deserves praise. Yeah, I was going to say what it sounds like to me is that the important, the underlying point for me is that most projects still finish 2K. Some projects will finish 4K. And when people talk about not needing the 12K, all I ever think is, okay, maybe you don't need to finish the 12 in 12K because there's nowhere for that to go, right? Like, I don't, I haven't heard of any 12K TVs on the market yet, but you finish 2K having shot on the 12K that has all this flexibility and you can do so much with the image you captured, right? Like you have so much, yeah. so much flexibility. So but to it's me- it's not about so much flexibility cropping in. I think that's where some people are like, oh, it's 12K, I can zoom in 80%. And it's like, it's not that flexibility. It's this beautiful flexibility of like, you're going to have, if you want a noise correct, you're going to be able to grab individual color layers and they're going to have really high resolution for doing noise correction. So you can push your grade that much further and you're going to have much better low light. And so like you're getting all that extra out of these Ks and you could probably punch in a little bit and not see a lot of artifacting probably. Right. But if you don't punch in at all, you still just have all this latitude. Yes. What your colors look like, what your blacks look like, what your highlights look like. That just sounds... 
really exciting to me. And I feel like when you say, you know, it's it's playable, I keep thinking, well, if you're using a $10,000 camera, you probably aren't going to edit it on your five-year-old MacBook Pro, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I... <laughs> I maybe you are. I don't know. There, there will be somebody that will try, yes. Absolutely. Well, also, it's... Like I often, like I'll usually have multiple computers at any given time because of me, but like I'll work on a project and I'll be working with like three or four other people and I'll, and someone will come over and I'll be like, oh shit. All right. You're supposed to be editing real three, but I don't have a tower for you. Did you bring your laptop? No. Oh, okay. I've got this old MacBook pro. Let's see if it can run. You know, like in our dream scenario, everybody has brand new machines for everything all of the time. In the reality of indie filmmaking, sometimes you have a deadline on Monday, it's Friday and you've got three people working on different things and you're just trying to get through it. And when that's the case, knowing if an older machine will do, like even when I owned a post house, we had 20 max, two of them were like 12 core monsters that could handle 4k raw. This was 2008. So 4k raw was a big deal. We had like red rockets and stuff. And then we had a bunch of like three year old IMAX and stuff. And we had a couple four. you know, you always have a mix of machines. So you're always looking at like, what machines in my facility can I run this on? Okay, well, say I'm, you know, indie filmmaker X and or indie filmmaker producer X, and I'm thinking about what camera to get for a project. What are the reasons that I consider this now? What does this change? Like people will still tell me, like if all things being equal or possible, I'd probably want an Alexa, right? What is the what is the angle with this? Well, Alexa is a lot more money. <laughs> sure. Yeah. No, I mean that's one reason. Yeah. But like does is this is this some like what is this what what niche does this carve out in the marketplace? Cuz a lot of cuz like in terms of what you what you're looking for like who is this for? Uh I think that this is going to be first off incredibly popular with schools. Uh, this, the black magic cameras have already been incredibly popular with schools. And I think that's absolutely going to continue. I think schools, you're going to see it higher, higher ed or film schools. Uh, uh, I think higher ed and more higher ed than film schools. You actually don't see black magic at film schools as much, but you see it a lot as like general higher ed. Like we are a major university who are launching a film program. You see a lot of it there. Dedicated film schools. Although I think USC bought a bunch of black magic verses. I think I saw a press release about that. So I think there's definitely some of that. Honestly, I think you're going to see, I think this might be the camera that finally breaks the Ursa into being competitive in the indie space. Like the same way you look at Sundance and it's all Alexa and then some very cam Mm -hmm. because everybody just wants nice color science. Right. I think the color science is nice enough in the tests I've seen. And I think the flexibility you're going to get in post is nice enough that you might actually see some people I mean, it's, it's, I'll be real. I, I saw it and I was like, Ooh, that's interesting. Like I really need to test that and see if that's going to be competitive. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think it might finally start to break into that world. Um, it's $10,000 price points, a little high, um, for sort of the corporate space, but maybe not, maybe they can sort of take on the FX nine a little bit with it. The major hurdle they have to figure out if they want that space is autofocus because right now they don't make their own lenses. And so they're always depending upon other people's lenses. So their autofocus is always going to be behind sort of the magic crack cocaine autofocus of a, uh, Sony FX nine or the Canon. Uh, what's the really crazy good autofocus Canon? Was it the C 200 or the C 300 Mark two where the autofocus got, or Mark three, maybe where the autofocus got really, really good. Um, and I think that's going to keep them out of the corporate space a little bit because corporates mm. really started to lean into autofocus skills. But I think we're still going to see, uh, yeah, I mean, I, you're, there's going to be a lot of these. This is going to be a popular camera. Like I think Blackmagic has uh, given themselves, you know, it took three years to design the sensor. They designed the sensor and, and Blackmagic Raw together. Like they gave themselves permission to get really weird in a way that little companies usually don't like literally everybody else, but them Sigma and Fuji and Sigma and Fuji are also, you know, Fuji is a huge company. Sigma's not as big, but you know, there, uh, Sigma has a big stills business that Blackmagic doesn't. Blackmagic just does motion pictures. 
and they were like, Hey, what if we just design our own sensor, how we feel like designing it? And I, yeah, I have a lot of respect for that. I have a theory or kind of an entertained guess as to why they went with 12K. At 2019 NAB, a lot of folks were still waiting for their pre-ordered 4K. And this is the Blackmagic Pocket, so it's not the Ursa Mini, but I'm going to make the comparison because I think there's an interesting comparison here. But they were still waiting for their 4K camera. And then Blackmagic announced the 6K like weeks after they got it, finally. So they were massively backordered. And then they said, and we have a brand new camera. And I had friends that were saying, great, I'm so glad I just dropped money on a 4K camera. The good news with 12K here is even if it's backordered, which it might be, whenever you get it, the resolution is going to be industry standard, right? So we're going to be in a moment where you can shoot 4K, 8K, 12K for, a, I hope, a while. Now that I said it out loud, maybe 16K will come out tomorrow. But my hope is that there's kind of a future proofing that's built in and at and future proofing i think at that price point it might wherever it might last you a couple of years at that resolution will be smart for some of the folks you just mentioned charles education um other folks that are investing over time we'll see i i realize that's not it's not a pocket cinema camera it's a different type of camera but when i saw that happen with the 4k 6k models of the pocket camera I said, well, maybe they're doing this so that by the time it gets to you, like if there's a delay or if there's something that they're future-proofing up, right? It's not just an 8K camera, it's a 12K camera. So you can kind of future-proof it uh, for the years that you might have it. I think there, I haven't heard as many complaints about waiting on the 6K as I heard about waiting on the 4K. I honestly think they were surprised in a good way at how popular the 4K was. Yeah. And I think the Ursa Mini line is an older line with more... I think they're probably better able to predict volume to produce on the 12K is my guess here. So I don't think we're going to see long wait times for it. I also just think it's like, it's a marketing coup. They're the first 12K camera. Like, you know, for the last, for the last 15 years, ever since, you know, cause Sony had it when they came out with the F900, which was a garbage doorstop from the day it was released, but it was, hated that camera but it was 1080 and everyone was like "Ooh, 1080 2398 even though the Ooh, colors 2398 <laughs> um and then red came out with a 4k camera and no one believed them everyone was like no 4k in a video camera what are you insane um in 2006 and then between 2006 and today the highest resolution motion picture camera you could buy was always a red there was always they had a 4k and then they eventually had a 4.5 uh, Mystery Max, and then the 5 Epic, and then the 6K Helium, and then the 8K Monstro, and I have that wrong. Yeah, it's pandemic, you know, but it's, you know, and then they've been living in 8K space for five or six years ahead of everybody else. And now people are just catching up 8K and Blackmagic. I think Blackmagic probably, you know, three years ago, my guess is Blackmagic was like, well, We'll either beat red or we'll tie red. Like they'll go 12K next. Um, but I think Blackmagic's probably feeling pretty good now that they beat red. I suspect we'll have a 12K red within a year. Um, although, interestingly, red has not put nearly as much effort in the last two or three years into the their high end, the big high resolution cameras. And they put much more effort into their weird phone failure. Right, exactly. The Komodo. <laughs> I think um, that they thought that 8K would stick around maybe for longer than they gave it credit for. Honestly, <laughs> I don't think yet. it's that. I honestly think they started to hit the limits of physics. So uh, when you get to smaller physics. and smaller sensors, sensils, right? You know, I mean, we're measuring the distance between sensils on a sensor in like microns, right? One of the reasons why we started moving to bigger sensors is so that we could have more uh, sensils on a sensor, but still have them be big enough to have some low light sensitivity. So my guess is that, you know, as they started designing and working on building higher resolution sensors, they start, you know, like you want an, at bare minimum, you need a native ISO of 800 these days. Ideally, you're looking at something like 1200 and a dual ISO of like 25 or 5 grand. Do you think they would have had, so there was no NAB this year where people might have gotten their hands on something to play with and get a feel of it. I remember at, at NAB and the other shows, people were really happy to get their hands on some of those cameras to get the feel and the look and i think people are bought in to this regardless of the look and feel because either they're familiar with their other cameras or they're just excited by 12k so they have that going for them i think there are maybe other cameras on the market where you want to 
make sure you go in and test it first before spending money on it. I think there's going to be a camera people are willing to to jump in. Well, it's also a camera where, like, you know, there are people who have some criticisms of the Ursa mini body shape. I mostly like it, and I'm not annoyed by the things that annoy others. But it's also a body shape that we've had for four years that, like, everybody, most people have shot something on an Ursa mini at this point. It's been around. There's one in my office. I've, I've built up a shoulder rig for it. Like, I know it really well. There are many of them floating around. So the hands on the body thing that you usually want when a whole new body style comes out, and you're like, ooh, how is this going to feel handheld? And like, where are the button placements? And how is this all going to work? It doesn't really matter as much here where you're like, oh, well, we know the body. The big cool thing is the new sensor. So I'm actually going to say, because what's interesting about all this is that Blackmagic usually does a really big NAB. They take it very seriously. But often the products are like, we are announcing it now, but Resolve, it's always in beta until September, or the camera's not shipping. My guess is that they would have talked about this at NAB because that's yeah. only three months ago. Yeah. Um, but it still wouldn't have shipped till September. Do we have a record times for the new camera? Like how long it will shoot in 12K? Oh. At its highest resolution? I haven't seen that. Uh, it does require dual CFast cards. CFast yep. cards are not cheap. No. Um, no reports yet on the SSD. I usually, when I shoot with the black bunch of cameras, you get the SSD adapter and you just buy cheap SSDs and they're one terabyte and you plug them in and you never think about filling them up. I don't know how fast you're going to fill up a one terabyte SSD uh, with raw. I don't even know. Because I think dueling CFast cards is going to be faster than an SSD. I wonder. Yeah, I actually haven't seen if you can shoot straight to SSD or if it's going to have to be dual CFast. I think people are going to find... I think we're going to see a lot of people shoot 4K and 8K on this camera, is my guess. Um, but it's full sensor. It's not windowed the way it is on other cameras. The record time for us when we looked at it for an educational institution was one of the factors. When we looked at the Ursa Mini, for what we were using it for, it wasn't the right tool for what we were using it for, which for a variety of reasons. But one of the factors was how long will it record to, to and to what? Well, it also, it only shoots RAW. This camera doesn't shoot any other format. Blackmagic RAW is its format. Oh, then yeah, I really want to see that. Because, well, and it makes sense too, because the processing effort of taking this weird sensor and repacking, you know, because usually Blackmagic camera, you can shoot to uh, DNX, you can shoot to ProRes, or you can shoot to Blackmagic RAW. This camera does not shoot, as of as the last time I checked, it, it is RAW only, no DNX or no ProRes, which makes sense, because they'd have to pack in a huge processor to process that. Whereas by shooting it to raw, it's moving that processing over to posts um, where you have a bigger processor available often. So it makes sense. I get it. But I think that's also going to be a surprise for a lot of people. Yep. Yep. And I think that's going to determine where people use it or where they can use it. All right. Time to move on to our next headline of the week. We finally have an official release date for Tenet, which we think is going to stick, which is <laughs> sometime in the future. Which um, is such at, a Tenet thing to say, which is hilarious. Sometime right, or sometimes in, in the past. Oh, there we go. In the past. <laughs> um, so Tenet is uh, a big Chris Nolan movie with a great trailer, and we're all excited to see it because Chris Nolan makes fun movies that are really enjoyable to see in the theater because he takes the theatrical experience seriously. And all summer, they... Uh, it's Warner's, right? Warner's has been pushing back the release and like there's a release date and then there's a new release date and then there's a new release date. And they have finally said it is an indefinite push. We're going to stop doing this insane thing where we say it's going to release this week and then we're going to push back two weeks and two weeks. And they've accepted that they don't know when they're going to release Tenet. And what's interesting, the reason why we keep coming back to Tenet is because there are other movies that probably would have gotten theatrical releases that instead went for some sort of home VOD experience. Um, you know, I don't know if there was ever a plan for Palm Springs to get a theatrical, but obviously Hulu just rolled it out and did well with it. And there are other movies that are having that. But there's a few movies, and we really use Tenet as the example of that. Some people might use uh, the Bond movie, but Tenet feels more like an, a more fun one to say. Um, they really feel like theatrical experiences, and Chris Nolan is quite famous for how meticulous he is about crafting a, a, a cinematic experience that can't be 
recreated at home, he really uses the full spectrum of the sound design that you can only really hear in a theater that most home systems can't replicate. He definitely uses what you can do in projection you can't do at home. Um, and it's sort of interesting to think about. And it also relates to another thing that has been going around the Twitters. And if you uh, got to this podcast from the website, is the home picture of the website, which is a cinema in France has released images of the social distance cinema that they are already building that will open early next year. If you've seen a little movie called the Star Wars prequels, it looks a little bit like the Galactic Senate. <laughs> I like that that's a whole little movie. <laughs> well, I, I actually, um, there's a cut online that cuts the three of them together. I bet it's like, not bad that way. It's about an hour and 10 minutes and it's pretty <laughs> good. Because it's probably better. So, but there's a backstory to that, which is Topher Grace, apparently, when he was interested, I think he's still interested in getting a director. He might have directed something. But when he was learning, he decided to recut those three movies and make a cut. And like, I remember living in LA and people would be like, ooh, I got invited to the Topher Grace cut last night. They didn't put on the internet or anything. They just did screenings in LA and it was like an LA in thing where you'd get invited to the screening of his cut of the prequels. It was a weird time in Los Angeles. And, anyway, uh, there's- no, that, and we, that was up, uh, we, I wasn't at no film school at the time, but that story blew up on no film school. Just like, and I was just going to say, I don't know where the hour and 10 minute cut is, but we should do a post on it on no film school as well. If we haven't already, I'll check the archives. So I went and I found a cut made by someone that's like roughly an hour and a half of the prequels. And when my wife was going to go with me to see one of the new ones, she said she hadn't seen any Star Wars movie. So I was like, oh, we'll watch our way through Star Wars. But that was my gentle way of being like, we're only going to watch this short version of the prequels. Jar Jar has one line in the hour and 10 minute cut. Um, <laughs> I can but, do a hundred podcasts about that. So I will hold, withhold comment and we will just talk back about the Galactic Senate, which applies to the theater, which then takes us back to tenants. So. <laughs> but it also, it really shows foresight that George Lucas recognized that if we had a Galactic Senate, they would need to be in their own pods in order to prevent infecting each other with their own individual <laughs> planets. I mean, I'm half kidding, but I'm a half true. Like that is a really well thought out galactic senate where you're like, every planet's going to have their own weird pandemics, and different animals might infect, or different species of people might infect each other in different ways. So they really kind of do need social isolation pods to make sense yeah. as a galactic senate. It's like, socially distanced for sure. It is how theaters will have to be, and leave it to the French who love the cinema and are you know culturally great a lot of the time. Uh, to create like they 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 put the cinema the movie experience the theatrical experience is is important if you've ever been there they have so many little revival theaters it's awesome um and it's i'm not surprised that they were like hey one way or another we are going to get people back in movie theaters and they've announced their first uh night screening will be a double feature of jerry lewis movies <laughs> of course yeah <laughs> um I want one of these in America. I would totally go to a social distance theater with those little pods. I want to see Tenet there. Can we build one in New York? They look like those little opera pods. Yeah, like when you go like fancy when you're like fancy at the opera and you sit in the little pod. Like that's what it looks and like. And you it's wear nice. the little glasses. Yeah, one little yeah with the handle. Um, I want to point out something about Tenet. I want to go back to Tenet for a second. So you know we've been writing about Tenets trials and tenetations on no film school for a year basically ever since the first trailers were coming out and i wanted to point out that it was supposed to be released last weekend originally and a lot of other big movies tent poles like this like correct me if i'm wrong michelle but didn't you go see, I think you mentioned this even last time, you went to see a press screening of Mulan. I did go to a press screening of Mulan March 7th, I think. And that, uh, and Mulan was pushed indefinitely pretty soon, right? They haven't set a new date for when Mulan is being released, correct? It got pushed. They had the premiere the next day and then it never came out in theaters. And as far as... Uh, the the Bond movie is. Does that mm-hmm. have a date set right now, Charles? Do you know? I, I think it was in November. I think it was in the fall. November date. Yeah. So what I think is interesting. The reason I bring all the backstory up is because we've had like tenant updates pretty pretty consistently because they keep saying it's going to be this date instead. It's going to be this date, and like you know, we've already passed the first date. Now it's become indefinite. It seems to me there is a quote from a baseball player 
where he said sports is a part of a functioning society and it may not make sense for us to try to have them. We're on the precipice of having them in some version anyway. But I loved that quote. And I've started to feel a little bit with Tenet, like, guys, like, just stop. <laughs> like, it's not going to happen right now. Like, it's not going to happen under these circumstances. And maybe having a movie like Tenet in a theatrical release is part of a functional society, which the United States does not really have right now. Um, and and it, I'm glad that they finally said indefinitely, but it, it, it highlights for me that I've personally had a little frustration with the fact that they keep saying, no, 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 this date, you know, like it's, it's, it, it feels like we should all just get on the same page here. And it's one of the reasons to a larger issue that we are struggling in this country to continue to contain COVID-19 that like, no, we're on a timeout here until we figure this out, like clean your room. And then you can watch Tenet. Like, that's how I feel about this. And I'm just like, I get where Christopher Nolan is coming from. I get where Warner Brothers is coming coming from. And I get where audiences are coming from. But I think this is long overdue to just say, hey, we don't know. Not anytime soon. Not coming soon. <laughs> like, like, And I'm glad we finally got there. But uh, I think everybody got a little Tenet fatigue. I think that we should embrace this idea that we don't know for now and that we hope that there will be solutions soon that make these things possible. I also just think it's going to be very interesting to watch this particular batch of movies. Because when I watch a movie from 2019, before all this happened, I know it's from 2019. But these are movies that were made in 2019, assuming that they were going to come out in a normal summer 2020. And so they're going to feel like period pieces, but they're going to be new releases in the cinema because they're portraits of the dreams of a world that's gone. Mm, yes, that's a really yeah. well said. I don't know if like, say there was a Bond movie in production right now where they were, sorry, in development right now, there probably is, but like, are they going to rewrite the next Spider-Man uh, to be like, COVID, to jive with a COVID world? Is that what you're saying? I think that, I don't, even if it's not officially set in a COVID world, if the writer is alone in their house right now, locked up with their cats, they're going to think about things differently. They're going to like everything about all the things we create right now are influenced by this world, this world shaking event that we're all sharing. And if you're living in the United States, the like the upheaval that we're going through here and the good progress we're going through and the meltdown of the government, all of those things but like, I can't imagine that it won't affect like, obviously half the writers in Hollywood have written spec scripts. I mean, we've already joked about this on the podcast, yes. right? But the couple that were on their first date and end up quarantined together and like, will they make it work? You know, like there's a dozen bad yes. pitches. There's 15 of those scripts that are going to hit Hollywood in October. Um, and two or three of those movies will get made the same way they made a couple of September 11th movies. But like, even though the Bourne Ultimatum never directly addresses September 11th, like it yes, is in yes. this world. And I think that, that Tenet is the last pre-COVID Tenet and whatever, whatever else was shooting, you know, there are movies that wrapped in February and March, right? I don't remember, like they're still in post. Those are the last movies. The same way there's some movies like Zoolander is really the last 90s movie because it was supposed to be released on September 11th. Mm. You know, we're going to see these movies that are like these nice relics of like, yeah. you know, shit was still bad in 2019, but it was different. It was a better kind of bad. I saw a tweet, which I thought, actually I saw multiple tweets proposing this, which I thought was hilarious, was that Tenet should be released in 10 minute segments on Quibi. And that's how Quibi is going to survive. <laughs> Which I thought was actually kind of interesting. <laughs> now, did anybody take the time to make a logo that turned the Tenet logo into 10-et or 10-it? Oof, that's Oh, I will clever. now. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I was going to say, like, who's missing that one? That's like the... I have many thoughts on how to save Quibi, but putting Tenet on them wasn't one of the ideas I thought of. I literally think it's the opposite of what people expect from Tenet, right? 
they expect sound and a theatrical experience and not staring at their phone. It's literally the exact opposite. But I thought it was an interesting proposal because we are kind of coming in this in this moment of, well, what platform is going to get it? Because that's where we're at right now. If they decide to do it, it would be what, 20 or 30 episodes? I can't do math right now. Christopher Nolan will never let that happen. Like he over his dead body. Would no, be allowed. like happen. he, like, like the the whole meme of of uh, the way Nolan intended is basically people like watching Dunkirk on their their watch. Like, I mean, like it, yeah. he will not. He, he the Quibi <laughs> is the anti him. Like it's like yeah, when people watch that like on their plane, right? right? They're watching Dunkirk like on the plane or something, right? In the smallest yeah. screen imaginable, like I'm a Tamagotchi, which is another way to age yourself. But, oh like, my gosh. <laughs> But I just think he will not like his whole like it's just it's a funny it's funny for that exact reason that it's like the exact opposite of where he wants to take content, quote unquote. All right. So that was a big week for the No Film School podcast. Uh, All right. Anybody got any um, pluggables to plug? Um, I think you should start, Charles, and start and do and get Salty Pirate out there. Yeah, saltypirate.tv. Uh, I've been plugging it for the last couple of weeks. I'm going to keep plugging it until I'm done plugging it. Uh, it's a web series. I wrote it, directed it. Uh, we cut it in Resolve, which is how it's relevant to this week's story. Uh, and it's a show about business and, and creative betrayal and, and friendships and art and why you should never call it a font. And uh, it's available on Amazon Prime and Ficto which is a Quibi competitor that didn't make much noise, but my show's on there, so check it out. And uh, it's also available on Vimeo if you're anti the Amazon. And you can find all that info out at saltandpirate.tv. And I'm on the Instagram and the Twitters at Charles This is Michelle Delatore. You can find me on the Twitters and the Instagrams at M-D-E-L-A-T-E-U-R. Thank you to Rachel. Thank you to anyone else who's been commenting on our work. Thank you for giving us a lesson this week. And we'll talk to you guys soon. I'm George Edelman, Editor-in-Chief at No Film School. Thanks for listening. And thank you for your questions and comments. Thank you, Rachel. We want more of the Rachels to comment and let us know uh, what you're thinking, what we did right, what we did wrong, what you want to hear more about, etc. Ask us questions. Email editor at nofilmschool.com. You can also email ask at nofilmschool.com. But I want to let you guys know about a couple exciting things. So all these cool cameras that have been coming out, we're going to start having some reviews and some hands-on stuff with them. I want people to get excited about seeing what these things can do from your friends at No Film School and what these cameras look like. And we're going to put them through uh, their paces. And I also want to let everybody know to go to the No Film School YouTube page because we do have videos. The reviews will be there eventually, but we will also have the video of our screenplay ebook. It's a standalone video that takes some of the lessons from our screenplay screenwriting ebook and consolidates them into a fun video featuring our very own Jason Hellerman, who's hysterical. And it's just cool. There's like cool stuff in it. It'll also direct you to the bigger ebook page where you can sign up for the newsletter, get the ebook, write a screenplay. If you're still in quarantine, which you know you probably are, you probably should be, uh, then it's a great time to write. So we're still we're still plugging that and we're still excited about it. And this video is fun. So thanks for listening and like, rate, and subscribe. 